Take a Bible this morning. Find the book of Nahum. You're still allowed to use a table of contents. If you need help tracking down Nahum, we're halfway through our Sunday morning sermon series talking about the last 12 books, 12 short books that come at the end of our Old Testament. In the Protestant tradition, we call these books the minor prophets, minor because they're shorter than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. In the Jewish tradition, they group these 12 books together and they call them, the title of our series, the Book of the Twelve. And so this morning we're looking at number 7 of 12. We've crossed the halfway point. And I thought I would just begin with a warning up front this morning. And the warning applies to Nahum, and it also applies next week when we talk about Habakkuk. The warning is that these two books are a little bit hard for some people to take in. They're not particularly hard to understand. We're going to get a little bit later down the the trail, we're going to get to Zechariah. And I'll tell you, when we get there, it's hard to understand. These books are not difficult to understand. These books are just a little bit difficult to take in because they go against a lot of what we in our culture have been conditioned to think about God, how he is, what he's like, how he relates to human beings. Nahum and Habakkuk are going to challenge a lot of the things that we've just been conditioned and programmed to assume about God. And when a lot of people hear some of the things that they hear in these two books, it almost makes them recoil a little bit. It almost makes them think, wait a minute, wait a minute, this isn't the God that I've always grown up believing in. And the challenge for us this week and next week is not to sit in judgment over Nahum or Habakkuk, but to listen to these books and to allow them to shape the way that we think about God. So we're going to start with a little bit of historical context. This just helps me make sense of each of these minor prophets, when they lived, where they lived, what they were about. We'll start with this. Nahum preached after the exile of Israel in 722 B.C. and before the exile of Judah in 586 B.C. And we'll go back to our timeline that we've looked at every week. The unified kingdom, the divided kingdom, the Assyrian exile, the Babylonian exile. This is the summary of Israel as constituted as a a geopolitical nation state in the ancient world, if you want to think about it that way. The unified kingdom was Israel, unified all the tribes together under Saul, then David took over, then Solomon took over. And when Solomon died, two guys split the kingdom. They divided it, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam took the northern tribes, and they became Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. Rehoboam took the southern tribe of Judah, and they became the southern kingdom of Judah. You fast forward, all of the kings of Israel in the north were wicked, and God eventually sent them into exile in 722 B.C., The kings in Judah were not much better on the whole, and about 130 years or so later, the Babylonians marched on Jerusalem and took Judah into exile. And we would put Nahum right in between these two exiles. The northern kingdom has been taken. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, came and conquered their kingdom. File that away. We're going to talk about the the Assyrians a lot this morning. And he was looking to the day when Judah would also be taken 
into exile. And just if you're a history buff, we can even take that window of 100 or so years and we can narrow it down a little bit. Nahum 3 looks back to the destruction of Thebes and it also looks forward to the destruction of Nineveh. And historians know with pretty good certainty when those two cities, Thebes, and Nineveh were conquered. And so you can just sort of take a a modified timeline here and we'll squeeze some more dates in here. Thebes was conquered or it was destroyed in 633. Nineveh fell in 612. And we would put Nahum right in the middle of it. So it's about a 50-year window when we know Nahum lived. Now, that's the history. What is the book about? What is Nahum's ministry when we look back in, in historical context and we say, okay, all these kingdoms are falling, cities are falling, exile has happened, exile's coming. What is the book actually about? If we summed it up with one sentence, we would say this. Nahum is a book about comfort. It's a book about comfort. And the best way I can explain this to you is just to talk about Nahum the man And some of the things we know about his life and some of the things that we think we know of his life. And everything that we talk about in Nahum is going to tie back to this idea that he's trying to give comfort to God's people. We'll start with this. What do we know about Nahum? We know his name means, surprise, surprise, comforter. Comforter. Many of these prophets, these minor prophets, these prophets of the twelve, many of their names have special significance for what they preached about or, or where they served or when they served. And Nahum's name is a clue. This guy was sent to God's people to bring them comfort. Secondly, we know that he was from Elkosh. If you just look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, it says an oracle concerning Nineveh. The whole thing's about Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, some of these weeks we've talked about where these prophets are from, and I've shown you a map, and I've said, here's where, where Jonah was from, or here's where Amos was from, and we've put it on a map. I wish I could do that for Nahum, but we don't really know where Elkosh is. There's sort of two arguments. One group says Elkosh was a, a small, very, very small area within Israel, within the northern kingdom of Israel. But another group says that Elkosh, and as it's spelled in the the ESV, it's E-L-K-O-S, is actually the Assyrian city of Alkosh, A-L-Q-O-S-H. And some people think that when Nahum says that he is from Elkosh, he's talking about this Assyrian city, and that perhaps he had been taken into exile and that's where he lived. That would fit with tradition. I can't show you a Bible verse that says this, but Jewish tradition says... Nahum was actually taken into exile, that he lived in the northern kingdom. The Syrians came and conquered Samaria and exiled many of the people, and that Nahum was one of those people. They captured him. He was sort of a a POW, and they took him from his home and settled him in Assyria, and he ended up in this city of Alkosh. Just as a piece of trivia, you take it for what it's worth. If you visit northern Iraq today, I know that's high on a lot of your travel plans going to northern Iraq. When you're there, you should go to the city of Alkosh. And I'll put a map up that shows you where Alkosh is. It's way up in the top of Iraq. And this picture right here is a shrine. Most of it, not all, most of it was destroyed by ISIS in the last several years. But you can still go there and you can see this site, this shrine. It's called Nahum's tomb. You say, is that really where he's buried? We ha- I don't, no one knows. Who knows? 
But long-standing tradition says that Nahum was buried here in northern Iraq, which at the time would have been an Assyrian city, the city of Alkash. So maybe we can piece some of these things together. Here's one more piece of the puzzle before we jump into the text. Nahum wrote to finish the story of Jonah. If you like to make notes in your Bible, you should just go to Jonah, and over there at the top you should say, this is part one, see Nahum for part two. And you should go to Nahum and you, sh- you should say, before you read Nahum, go back and read Jonah. Jonah's part one and Nahum is the rest of the story. Let me mention a couple of the, the similarities between the books and connecting points between the books. First is this. Of all the prophets, major or minor, there are two prophets that end their book, their writing, with a question. Guess who they are? Jonah and Nahum. Jonah ends with God questioning the prophet, shouldn't I care about all of these people in Nineveh? And the question is not answered, and you and I, we talked about it when we looked at Jonah, we're left to wrestle with that question. Shouldn't I care about all these people? Nahum picks up the same story, and Nahum ends with a question, and the question this time is directed to the Ninevites, and God is questioning them about their sin and their wickedness. But both end with a question. Both of them deal with the city of Nineveh. You remember Jonah. He sent, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And he goes in the opposite direction. You pick up in Nahum, in the very first verse we've already read, says an oracle concerning Nineveh. There was about a hundred years gap between Jonah and Nahum. It's a remarkable story. God sends a reluctant prophet Jonah to Nineveh. And the people, when he preaches, the people repent. Doesn't mean that they turn to Yahweh, but they did sort of straighten up for a time. And God, in his patience and his grace and his mercy, he relented of the disaster he was going to bring on that city. And he didn't just relent for a week. He didn't just give them another month or another year. He gave them a century to get it right. And a hundred years later, we pick up the story with Nahum. It's part two of Jonah. Both of these books dealing with the city of Nineveh. I just want to remind you of some of the things I shared with you about Nineveh. At the time that Nahum preached and wrote this book, it was the most important city and the most powerful empire on earth. The most important city in the most powerful empire in the entire world. This is an artist's rendering of what the city may have looked like. It's not just made up. It's taken from historical details and sort of pieced together. The city covered about 2,000 acres. They had parks. They had aqueducts. They had uh, lavish homes. They had a library. It was an extremely sophisticated city. Right? Around the city, there was a moat. The details of the moat, in case you're curious, you see it in the picture. The moat was 150 feet wide and dug 60 feet deep to protect the city. They had two walls. There was an outer wall, and you can see some of that depicted here. Also, in the heart of the city, there was an inner wall. The inner wall, get this, 100 feet tall and wide enough for three chariots to race at one time. You say, how wide is that? I have no idea. I'm not up on chariot widths, standard size of a racing chariot. But you get the idea. Three chariots stacked side to side, the wall 100 feet tall, and they used to race. They would have races. They would invite the city. Come out, watch the chariot race. We'll start at this point. This point, we'll race 
all the way around the city. I mean, it was a spectacular place. Sennacherib built his palace in the heart of Nineveh. And archaeologists have dug it up, and they found things. And one of the things they found is over two square miles of carved stone. Most of the stone depicting battles that the Assyrians had fought and battles that they had won. But two square miles, if you laid it all down flat, it would cover two square miles of carved stone. It was just a, an opulent, lush, lavish place. It was a beautiful place. It was the most important, powerful city and the most powerful, important empire on earth. This was the dominant city of the dominant empire. And their dominance came through cruelty. And I need you to understand a few things about the cruelty of the Assyrians. We hinted at some of this stuff when we talked about Jonah. Let me just fill in a few of the gaps. You can go back and read 2 Kings. 2 Kings tells the story of the Assyrians marching against the northern kingdom of Israel. There's not a whole lot of details. About all it says is they came, they fought, they laid, they laid siege to the city, they conquered it, they exiled a bunch of people. Not a lot of details. But this was ancient siege warfare. There was nothing civilized about it. It was completely horrific on every level. And I'll, I'll read you a quote and I'll show you some pictures that maybe fill in the gaps a little bit to help you understand the Assyrians. This is Ashurbanipal. This is the Assyrian emperor when Nahum was on the scene. And they found this carved relief in his palace describing what he did to some of his enemies. He said this, As for the common men who spoke derogatory things against my god Asher and who plotted against me, the prince who reveres him, Asher, I tore out their tongues and abased them. As a posthumous offering, that means after they were dead, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of the protective deities between which they had smashed Sennacherib, my grandfather. So this was all about revenge. And I'm going to take their deities and I'm going to use their deities to physically smash them to bits. Their cut-up flesh I fed to the dogs, swine, jackals, birds, vultures, to the birds of the sky, and to the fishes of the deep pools. With love, Ashurbanipal. <laughs> He's a bad dude. The Assyrians did not play around. And I'll show you a few pictures of scenes from Assyrian war. I know they're a little bit hard to see, but I think you can make some of these out. Top left, those are people being impaled on stakes through their sternum. Enemies of the Assyrians. In the middle, you see a couple of guys, and it looks like they sort of have palm branches up. You may notice down at their feet that there are piles of heads, and there are men on the right side who are actually tabulating those heads. They're counting them. You see on the right, an Assyrian warrior with his bow. He's standing on a pile of skulls and then stacked up as decoration. I've sort of taken a big picture and given you the part you needed to see our heads on a post, stacked up. Down on the bottom left, you can see some people. It looks like they're laying sideways. They're not flying like Superman. They're being skinned alive by the Assyrians. At the bottom, you see decapitated bodies and Assyrian soldiers holding the heads. And then on the bottom right, you see a club or a, a sword up in the air and people being beheaded. I'm not just trying to get street cred with the middle school boys this morning, okay? 
It's not just for gory details and interest and e. I want you to understand a couple of things about the Assyrians. When God sent Jonah to cry out against the great city of Nineveh, this is why he didn't want to go. That wasn't like go down to Brazil and tell him something for me. He knew what it could cost him, and he ran in the opposite direction. And I want you to understand some of the things that Nahum would have witnessed in his life. Nahum doesn't give all the gory details. He didn't need to. He remembered it, and the people that he's writing to remembered it. It's sort of like the crucifixion. When you read about the crucifixion of Jesus, there's not all the gory details that sometimes get filled in in movies or sermons. It's because everyone who read it originally, everyone who read the Gospels originally knew what crucifixion was like. They didn't need the gory details to be written down. And when Nahum writes this book, and he writes it to God's people, and he's trying to comfort them, he doesn't include the details, but everybody knows. They remember. They remember what it was like to be holed up in Samaria and to see the Assyrians marching towards them. They remembered the dread, the the pit they felt in the bottom of their stomach, thinking about what was awaiting their loved ones and maybe themselves. They remembered what it was like for the gates of Samaria to be breached and for these folks to come flooding in. It was burned into their brains. And all of that is just sort of floating around in the background when you read the book of Nahum. Nahum experienced that sort of violence at the hands of the Assyrians. You never forget that. You don't ever move on from it. The people that he's writing to, the people that have been taken into exile in Assyria in what we call northern Iraq, they remembered it. They told the stories down. They passed it down to their kids. This is what happened. They all knew the horror of all that had gone on. And Nahum, the comforter, is writing this book to give those people comfort. And what we're going to focus on this morning is the three ways that he offers comfort to these exiles. We're going to break it down into the sections of this book. So what was Nahum's message? What did he, what did he have to say to God's people that would bring them comfort? Number one, he wanted the people to reflect on God's character, on his character. This is the first section of Nahum. It's verse 2 to 8. We're going to read it in a minute. I think it's fascinating that he doesn't start off sort of sympathizing or empathizing with all the horrors of being sent into exile. He doesn't focus on their situation. And he doesn't even focus initially on the Assyrians. He's going to get to the Assyrians. Just wait. God has something in store for them. But the first thing he does is not to focus on God's enemies, and it's not to focus on the suffering of his people. It's to say to God's people who have suffered, you must remember who God is. You cannot base your definition of God on how you feel right now. You cannot base your definition of God on what you've experienced over the last several years. You've got to remember the truth about who he is. And I just want you to see how Nahum begins. Look at Nahum chapter 1 starting in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger 
and great in power, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness." That's what Nahum has to offer first. You have to remember who God is. And he gives us this long list of descriptive adjectives and characteristics. He's jealous. He's avenging. He says it over and over. Avenging, avenging, avenging. He's wrathful. He's slow to anger. He's great in power. The earth melts before him. He will not clear the guilty. He controls all the forces of nature. He rules over the people. His indignation and his anger are overwhelming. And in the middle of it all, verse 7, the Lord is good. He is all of these things. And what you and I tend to do in our suffering is exactly what these people tended to do in our suffering, is we tend to question whether God really is who he says he is. Are you really good? Are you really going to make it right with the Assyrians? Are you really able to do anything? Because you didn't do anything to save us from this horror. Are you really powerful enough to to fix things and to set things right? We ask all of these questions. And Nahum walks into people who are wrestling with all this stuff. And look, he doesn't just give them the cheap greeting card advice like, well... Every cloud has a silver lining, you know. Just try to make the best of it. Well, I know it's rough, but God won't give you more than you can handle. So hang in there. We're rooting for you. He doesn't give them any of that silly stuff. He just cuts right to it to these people who have suffered. And he says, look, you've got to remember who God is. I know you're questioning it. I know you're doubting it. I know you don't feel like these things are true, but this is the truth about who God is. And if you want to find any comfort in your suffering, you've got to build your house on this foundation. He's jealous and avenging and wrathful and slow to anger and great in power. He won't clear the guilty, controls the forces of nature, rules over all the peoples. His indignation and his anger are overwhelming. He is good. Those things are true. You may not feel like they're true, but they're true. So he starts with saying to the people, you've got to reflect on God's character. Secondly, he wants them to hope in God's justice. He wants them to find hope that God is a God of justice, that he will right wrongs. We're not going to read Nahum 1.9-2.2. I'll give you a little bit of a, a heads up. The pronouns in this section are kind of tricky. 
God is, is talking to his people and he's talking to the Assyrians and he kind of goes back and forth and you have to slow down and think, wait a minute, who's, who's he talking to? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Who's he directing this to? But you can sort it out. I want you to see two verses in particular, right? Hoping in God's justice. Look at Nahum 1.12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Remember Nahum, he lives at the height of Assyrian power. And God says through the prophet, I know that they're at full strength. I know there's tons of them. I'm going to cut them down. Rest assured, I'm going to cut them down. And then he turns to the people and he says, I know that I've afflicted you. Right? I told you, for your idolatry, you would be sent into exile. And I've afflicted you. I know that. But I will afflict you no more. There's a change coming. And he talks about that change in Nahum 2.2. Look what he says. The Lord, Yahweh, is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. There's a restoration coming. God is going to cut the Assyrians down. And he is going to restore his people. He's just. And what you've experienced, it was, it was a wicked, violent ungodly thing the way that these people treated you. And God's going to make it right. He's just. He's going to cut these people down and he will restore Israel. The last thing, Nahum wanted the people to rest in God's judgment. This is just a little more specific as you get to the end of the book. Yes, he's going to set things right by Israel and by Assyria, but at the end, the focus of the book is just on judgment. God is going to judge the Assyrians. And you remember at the beginning of the sermon where I warned you that there was some things in Nahum that people read about God and they look up from the text and they say, wait a minute, that, that doesn't sound right. Here we go. We're not going to read all of the last section, but there's a phrase repeated and I want you to see the phrase. Look at Nahum 2.13. This is the Lord speaking through Nahum to Assyria, and he says, Behold, I am against you. I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. You say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Well, look at the the parallel verse. That's Nahum 2.13. Look at Nahum 3.5. He says the same thing again. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. Lord speaking to the Assyrians. I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness. And kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you. And treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek, here's that word, comforters for you? He's sending Nahum to bring comfort to Israel. And he's saying to Nineveh, no one will comfort you. There will be no comfort for what I'm going to do. And he describes it very graphically. 
how this judgment is going to take place. I'm going to lift up your skirts. They're going to look at your nakedness. They're going to see your shame. I'm going to throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And I know how that sounds to modern ears. People read that and they say, wow, that is just, eeeh. The God of the Bible said he was going to do something like that? We're going to talk about it a little bit more this morning. Right now, I just want you to see what Nahum is doing is trying to comfort the people. And he says, you've got to remember who God is. You've got to remember that he's just. He's going to make it by, right by you and right by Assyria. And you've got to remember, all the horrific things you've experienced, God's judgment is going to fall on these people. I know you don't see it yet, but it's coming. God's judgment will fall on Assyria. Nineveh will be overrun. What do we do with it? What do we do with Nahum? All the things he says about God, all the things he talks about is justice and this horrific picture of judgment. What do we do with it? Let me suggest two things. Number one, our thoughts about God should be, must be, ought to be shaped by his self-revelation. Our thoughts about God, what he's like, who he is, have to be shaped by his his self-revelation. How many of you, when you were younger, ever remember playing the game Guess Who? You remember this game, or you played it with your kids, or you played it with your grandkids? You get a board, and everybody flips their faces up, and each person on each side picks a card, one of the cards that's up on your, your opponent's screen, and you set it there. And the game is you try to figure out who the opponent picked, who their little card is, what the face is. And you get to ask questions. Uh, does your person have blonde hair? Does your person have any hair? Is your person a guy? Is your person a girl? All these different questions. And you try to figure out, boil it down to who the other person has. And you figure out what they look like. I think a lot of Americans do theology sort of like the game of guess who. This is what I mean. In our culture, we like to sort of set up all the options. Okay, what are, what are my choices? Americans love choice. What are all my choices? We've got the Christian view of God, and we've got the Muslim view of God, and we've got the Buddhist view of not God, and all these different views of, of God and religion and spirituality, and we sort of set them all up on our board. And then we sort of, sort of start asking ourselves questions. Well, what do I think he's like? Does he look like this one? No, I don't think he looks like this one. I'm going to close that one. Does he look like that one? Eh, not really. I don't really like that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me, so I'm going to close that one. And we ask all our questions, and we filter all our thoughts about God through our cultural preferences and our personal preferences, and we end up with one little face sticking up in the game board, and we say, yeah, yeah, I, I think this is what God is like. You know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. You maybe didn't cut a tree down and fashion it with a tool, and maybe you didn't do what Aaron did where he takes the metal and melts it down and fashions it with a tool, and maybe you didn't make an idol with your hands, but the Bible says that's idolatry. That's you trying to decide what you want God to be like based on your feelings, based on your personal experiences, based on your ability to reason or make sense of things. It's idolatry. You've created your own version of God. And when a lot of people come to Nahum, they read this stuff about God's judgment and they just say, I don't like it. 
I've had people in the last month talk to me face to face and say, as we've worked through the minor prophets and say, I don't like that idea about God. I'm not comfortable with that. I I don't think that's what he's like. And I've just, as nicely as I could, tried to smile at them and say, God's not asking for your vote. He doesn't need your confirmation. He doesn't need your stamp of approval. He's not putting this out for a decision amongst the masses. He's just saying to us, this is what I'm like. And he does it through poems, and he does it through stories, and he does it through prophecies, and he does it through books like Nahum. And he just paints this picture of himself, and he says, this is who I am. And you need to understand the truth about me. You need to accept it. If you want to wrestle with it, you should talk to a guy named Job, who tried to question God about what he was like and what he was experiencing. In the end, Job said, I'm talking about stuff that's way above my pay grade, and I need to, I need to zip it. You could talk to the Apostle Paul who who gives us this metaphor. He says, is the clay really going to speak back to the potter and say that they don't like something? That's not how it works. He's the creator. We are the creature. Our position as creature is not to come to God with our expectations and say, I'll worship you as long as you meet these criteria. Our position as the creature is to listen to his self-revelation and to say, okay, this is who he is. And one of the things that Nahum is telling us is that he's wrathful. He says it over and over and over again in chapter 1. He's angry. He's avenging. He's wrathful. If that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. That's how he's revealing himself. He's also revealing himself to be patient. And he says right there in Nahum 1, I'm slow to anger. And I guess you can look at this destruction that God promised to bring on Assyria, and I guess you can thumb your nose at it and say, that's that's over the top, that's too far, that sounds mean, that sounds vindictive, I don't like that about God. But let's also be honest. Before he ever sent Nahum, he sent Jonah. And when they moved one inch in the right direction for one short period of time, he gave them another hundred years. Nahum is not part one. Nahum is part two. He is slow to anger. And Nahum says right in the middle of it, verse 7, Nahum 1, 7, the Lord is good. I'll be honest with you. I think that's the one the people of God wrestled with when they first read it off the page and Nahum had written it. I think that's the one they weren't so sure about. Are you serious, Nahum? You're going to come at us with this stuff about God being good? Do you know what we've been through? You were there, Nahum. You saw it. It was your family. It was your friends that they did that to. And you're going to say that God is good? And Nahum just patiently plodding along saying, it doesn't matter what your feelings are about it. He is good. He's good, and he's slow to anger, and he's wrathful. And you may want to cut one of those off or two of those off or all those off, but this is what he's telling you about himself. And your job as the creature is to accept that and to allow God's revelation to shape the way you think about him. Number two, what do we do with Nahum? We need to see God's judgment against evil as good news. God judging evil is actually very good news. 
So keep your Bible open because we're going to look at Nahum again in a minute. Don't close up shop yet. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe you say, I don't like the picture of God that's being painted in Nahum. I understand that people wrestle with it and people are uncomfortable with it. I get that. I don't even criticize you for it. Maybe you're here and you are a follower of Jesus and you just look at what Nahum has to say about how God is going to treat a certain group of people and you say, that's kind of awkward to defend. I don't know how to defend that. Like, I'll take it at face value, but if somebody questions me on that, that really puts me in a tight spot. Right? Wherever you land on this spectrum of not exactly being easy with the picture of God painted in Nahum, I just want to give you a few things to think about. I'm not trying to argue with you. Not trying to be convincing. I just want you to think about a couple of things. Number one, I want you to think about this. This is not me saying, I think this is what God's like. This is not me saying to you, at Emmanuel Baptist Church, this is what we think God is like. This is me saying to you, here it is in Nahum. I'm not dreaming it up. This isn't some... Thing that I just sort of stumbled across. I mean, it's, it's here. And your beef or your, your wrestling or your uneasiness isn't with me or it's not with this church or any other church. It's with the Word of God. That's what you're wrestling with. Number one, this is, this is the biblical view of God. Number two, if you read this stuff about God lifting skirts and showing shame and treating people with contempt and all that, and you get uneasy and squeamish, I would honestly like to know what you're going to do with what Jesus says about hell. Because the things you read in the New Testament, the part that's all lovey-dovey grace, mercy stuff, where Jesus of Nazareth is walking around talking to people about hell, the things Jesus says about hell are far scarier than anything you'll read in Nahum. So you don't, get a, you don't get the choice of saying, well, this is it's Old Testament, preacher. That's old stuff. That's what God used to be like. This is, now he's like this because Jesus has come. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't water this down. Jesus ratchets this up. So you've got to wrestle with Jesus. Thirdly, not that you and I get a vote in the whole thing anyways. Not that this makes a hill of beans difference one way or the other. I just want to ask you, do you really want to live in a world where there is no all-powerful God who in the end is going to make things right? Do you want to live in that kind of universe? Does that sound more appealing? Does that sound more hopeful that all of the horrific suffering that we experience, all the wickedness, all the ugliness, just open the paper, watch the news. All of this stuff's not ever going to be set right and it just sort of it is what it is and we have to suck it up and live with it. Does that sound more attractive than what Nahum is saying as he offers comfort and he says, look, remember who God is. He is just and he is going to bring judgment on sin. I'll be honest with you, there's way more at stake than just the book of Nahum here. You may say, well, look, it's a minor prophet. I have never heard a sermon or a Bible study on Nahum. I don't know that I need Nahum. I'm just going to cut Nahum out and go back to my normal happy existence. I just want to tell you, the stuff we're talking about in Nahum is not just minor prophet truth. It's not just book of the 12 truth. It's gospel truth. 
All of these things play into what we read about the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel is not, if you just ask God to forgive you, he's just like a big pushover grandpa, teddy bear in the sky, and he's just going to say, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. The Bible says he is way too holy to pretend like your sin is no big deal. He is far too pure and righteous and just to overlook evil. Nahum tells us he won't let sin go unpunished. That's not who he is. This is the gospel. If you will repent of your sin, if you will agree with God about your sin, and you'll turn from it, and you will trust in Jesus, you will be made right with God. You say, that's too good to be true. It just sounds like, what's the difference? Here's the difference. The difference is Jesus. Jesus was wronged so that we could be made right. That's what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. Early on, he says, God put forth his son as a propitiation for our sin. What does that big theological word mean? Jesus was a propitiation for our sin. Here's what it means. God took his anger towards our sin and he poured it out on his son so that he wouldn't have to pour it out on us. Take your Bible and look at Nahum 3. I'll tell you exactly what it means, that Jesus died as a propitiation. It means that when he died on the cross, Nahum 3, 5, the Lord was against him. The Father was against him. I'm going to lift up your skirts and the nations will look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. That happened at the cross. He hung there like that. As a propitiation, taking God's anger for our sin. I will treat you with contempt. I will throw filth at you. I will take the filth of my people and I will throw it on you. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, The one who knew no sin became sin for us. All of our filth got chucked on him at the cross. Those who look at you will shrink and say, Who is there to grieve for you? Who is there to comfort from you? The New Testament is saying Jesus took what Nahum is describing in our place for our sin. He was the propitiation. He took God's anger, his holy, righteous anger that should have been directed towards us, and he took it. And the result is that because he was wronged, we can be made right. And Paul comes to the end of the, the book of Romans, and this is what he says. He's just sort of summing up the theological part of Romans, and he says, this is good news. This is why the feet of those who preach good news and bring good news are so beautiful. We don't have bad news about God. We don't have anything to be embarrassed about God. You don't have anything in Nahum or Romans or anywhere in between that you need to shrink from. We have good news that Jesus has taken this punishment that we deserved so that we could be made right. I don't want you to look at Nahum as something to be embarrassed about. I don't want you to look at Nahum as something that we have to come up with some fancy argument to defend. I want you to look at Nahum where God is promising judgment on sin, and I want you to see it as good news. Because Jesus came and took the judgment of sin that we deserved, we can be made right with God. That is good news.